because the big thing about comedy is, you know, there's moments that are magic. Like on a show like 30 Rock, you had a ton of people who are incredible improvisers and it, mm-hmm. and they were just little moments. It was a very scripted series, but there were little moments sometimes that, you know, somebody said something a different way and the reaction was different and it made it so much funnier. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. Today's episode features the recent event Spotlight on Director Beth McCarthy Miller, which was hosted by the DGA's Focus on Women Committee. Ms. McCarthy Miller's directorial credits include the television series MTV Unplugged, The Ben Stiller Show, numerous high-profile concerts, and 11 seasons of Saturday Night Live. A 13-time DGA Award nominee, she won twice in the comedy series category for her 2017 Veep episode, Chicklet, and her 2013 30 Rock episode, Hogcock, Last Lunch. Please enjoy Ms. McCarthy Miller's conversation with fellow directors Sarah Brooke and Shanta Fripp in front of a virtual audience, wherein they discuss the collaborative nature of comedy, whether Ms. McCarthy Miller has a preference between single camera and multi-camera directing, and what it was like to be a female director in the male-dominated environment of Saturday Night Live. And what I would love to start this conversation with is how did you get your start 30 years ago? And what was it like breaking in as a female director? Uh, I got my start as uh, an intern at MTV when I was in college. I thought I would go into hard news and do something, you know, to help the universe like the two of you are doing. Um, (laughs) I entered at CNN and didn't enjoy it. Um, So I had DJed all through college. I... I uh, was very interested just in the television industry in general. And when I graduated from college, I got an internship at MTV, which kind of melded two of my favorite things, music and television. Um, and I got a job at the end of the summer being the assistant to the line producer. And MTV was that place that literally, you know, it was sink or swim. It was like going to school. Um, you know, it was one day you're being a control room PA and then uh, six months later you're filling in for the associate director that called in sick and then then you're doing that and then all of a sudden you're floor producing on the floor with uh, you know with the talent and writing copy for them and then um, I basically took whatever job made more money because I was living in Hoboken and waitressing on the weekend so I could afford to you know buy a pair of jeans when I ripped my old ones. So uh, I was going to take a full-time producer job because it was more money. And um, the two male directors that I AD'd for sat me down and said not to, and said that a directing job was gonna open up. And they really saw me in the director's chair and thought that that's where my talents were. And I took their advice and sucked it up for about six more months. And it was the greatest advice I've ever been given, pretty much. And uh, I started directing at MTV and you, you know, the studio was running five days a week. Plus we were doing shoots on the weekends and we were doing the openings of concerts and we were doing, and you, you know, you were just in the director's chair all the time. So you either got better or you stopped directing because <laughs> um it was the greatest thing because I sat in the chair, I did news style directing, I did, you know, small music performances, I did, you know, every kind of directing there was, Um, whatever show was on MTV, I started doing it, which was great. Uh, And then I started doing the half hour comedy hour for MTV and started 
directing their pilots and I did uh, a show called the Ben Stiller show, which was Ben's show before he went to Fox, which was kind of a sketch show. And then uh, the next greatest thing that happened to me was uh, they asked me to meet with a comedian named John Stewart. And he had an idea for a late night talk show that kind of fit the mold of MTV. It was a little less stuffy suit and tie late night thing. And uh, I met John and like everyone else in America immediately fell in love with him. And uh, we did, I think, three or four seasons on MTV. And then the show got picked up uh, for syndication. And I left MTV and joined the Directors Guild. That's what took you John to the Stewart Guild. Show. So that's how everything started. Um, it sounds like coming up for you in that environment, it's very similar to uh, maybe a local news environment for some folks out there that you get, get to do everything. And do you think that those directors seeing those instincts in you is real? Because I think when I see people coming up, that you can kind of tell if they have the directing instinct and, and they saw that in you. That was why they, they pushed you towards the director chair. Agreed. I think they noticed my natural bossy self. And <laughs> no, I think, you know, you can see that in people. And I, I helped to do that when I was at MTV, I started running the studio before I left. And so I staffed the stage managers, the ADs and brought everybody up. And you could tell when someone was a PA, you could tell if they had that, that instinct to kind of, um, and especially at MTV, you, you know, people just had to jump in and do stuff because it was really, you know, um, run and gun. And I, you know, one of my PAs who I promoted directs the Ellen, the, uh, Ellen DeGeneres show. And another one of my PAs who was my associate director and left MTV with me is a huge multicam director now. And one of my PAs who I promoted to stage manager, I brought to Saturday Night Live and she's still at Saturday Night Live. So um, it was a really great training ground and you could tell very quickly working five days a week with people whether they had it or not. And it sounds like what you were doing at MTV kind of brings us to SNL because you did music, you did sketch comedy, you did news. So that really, what was it like to then take those skills to SNL? And what was it like to be a, a female director in a, in a male dominated environment like that? The word that comes to mind is terrifying. Mm -hmm. um, it was absolutely terrifying. Uh, I was originally only being uh, looked at for part of the show, like doing music and update in this segment that David Spade was going to do called Spade in America. And they kept asking for, on the Jon Stewart show, on a lot of late night talk shows, they have a director that directs the, the single camera comedy pieces and a director that directs the show. And I did everything at Jon Stewart, mostly for budgetary reasons, but, you know, I just had new John sensibilities, so it was easier. Um, and uh, so when they wanted me for the whole show, I was completely terrified. And it's scary because Saturday Night Live was a extremely well-oiled machine before I got there. I'd been on the air for 20 years and I was the, um, you know, very, uh, you know, sticking out like a sore thumb because I was a lot younger than a lot of the people there. I was female and I was the wrench thrown into mm -hmm. uh, their, their organized chaos. So, um, 
it was very hard at first. Uh, the first few months were awful. I mean, the first time you do the show, you're doing the show live. And that show lives on the chaos of making changes at the last minute. And, uh, you know, one sketch went long, so they're pulling the next sketch out of your book and they're cutting shots. And in the commercial break, you are telling cameras shots that are no longer there. You're telling an actor that line that you were crossing on is no longer there, cross on this line. And, and it, it, um, it was like going to war, but it uh, prepared me for every single thing I do in life from, from anything I do work-wise to anything in my life. I, there, there's not much that, um, that can shake me these days just based on spending 11 years doing that. <laughs> I don't know if I'm gonna live as long as I should, but I'm <laughs> definitely prepared for almost everything because of that show. And it's, it's an unbelievably creative environment uh, to be in. I am absolutely blessed that Lauren chose me that many years ago. Uh, I was with an unbelievable amount of incredibly creative, some of the funniest people I've ever um, been with in my life. And, um, you know, uh, just you're around that rarefied air and you you kind of soak some of that up. And I think it has helped me comedically uh, when I am on set on a daily basis because I spent a ton of time with the John Stewart's of the world, the Tina Fey's of the world, the Will Ferrell's of the world. I can go on and on. The Adam McKay's that it's incredible when I look sometimes and I watch a show that someone that I worked with has done or a movie and I just feel like I could pinch myself. I was so lucky that I was in the same room with those people, never mind collaborating with them. Yeah. Wow. On that note, Shante. <laughs> I want to on to the next chapter of your career, though. Um, as a live director, I've always heard that episodic directing is a completely different animal. What was your experience like making the transition from live to episodic? Well, I was really lucky because it was um, Saturday Night Live was kind of that meld transition. So it was live directing, but I had to figure out blocking for the sketches and I had to work on performances, which, you know, when I was at MTV, I, you know, and until I did the Jon Stewart show and like Ben Stiller, I, I wasn't doing a ton of working on performances and making scenes work and making things funnier. So I did have those 11 years at Saturday Night Live, which the other thing it taught me was being very flexible. And it also taught me how to think quickly on my feet to change scenes and blocking to make it work for everybody. Um, my biggest thing is in comedy is I think it's really, it is a group effort. I do think that, you know, dramatically th there is a vision and, and sometimes there's a singular vision and that works. I really feel like with comedy, you know, you're always trying to make it better and funnier. And I think it really is a collaborative effort. So um, what helped me transitioning from particularly Saturday Night Live to narrative was that I did have to think on my feet. And when you are on the set and, um, you know, especially with single camera, you're rehearsing it the morning that you're going to shoot the scene. So you rehearse it, you got to make it work. And then all of a sudden you're lighting and shooting the scene. So um, sometimes the actors have a different thought than you had. Sometimes your showrunner has a different thought than you had. Um, and, you know, for me, 
best idea wins. And sometimes I have to figure out how to fix the blocking or fix something about it because whatever I had set up wasn't the best idea. So um, I think Saturday Night Live gave me a unique gift going into narrative for that. Um, but every uh, every job I go to, even now, I you know I really do learn something new every day. <laughs> I really do. Um, I learn from all different new groups of people. Like right now, I'm doing a show that's kind of a multicam hybrid. And ironically, once I left the multicam world, most of the half hours I did were single camera. <laughs> so, you know, eight years into my um, career doing comedies, I would have meetings with people and they're like, oh, you do multicam? <laughs> and it was my whole career for a very long time. So um, uh, it's, you have to wear different hats. You have to kind of figure out how to make each genre work because single cam and multicam definitely have distinct differences. Um, and every show you go to has different dynamics. And when you become freelance, you're, you're walking in and you're, your job as the episodic director is first and foremost to make sure the show still looks like the show and feels like the show. So, um, you have to be flexible and you have to, you know, be able to take in everyone's um, opinions and make sure the best product gets on the screen. Um, you said that you were able to hire PAs and ADs when you were at MTV. Did you have the luxury of, of choosing your staff or your crew when you got to Episodic? Only if you're doing a pilot and when you're doing Episodic television and you're a guest director, uh, the whole staff is there. So. Um, the the bad news is that you know you're having to meet new people all the time and try to work within the frame of them uh but the good news is you get to work with all different kinds of people and you take something you take all the positives and the negatives from each experience and try to make your next experience better uh you don't have the luxury i do have people that will call me and ask for recommendations when they're staffing up but Usually, whoever the showrunner and the director of the pilot, um, they kind of put together the staff for the season. Um, but whenever I get an opportunity, I, you know, I always try to give my most informative opinion of, you know, who's who's great. Okay, my last question here is: um, What are the biggest differences in directing on the East Coast versus on the West Coast, if there are any? Um. There's definitely subtle differences. I mean, East Coast, West Coast, uh, you know, the people that I've had the luxury to work with are all very good at their jobs. Um, you know, the crews in New York are unbelievably hardworking and they are shooting outside in the middle of snowstorms. And, you know, uh, the West Coast, um, I, I think that's the funniest difference is, you know, if there's a little bit of rain on the West Coast, there, there's like a panic of like, oh, what do we do? And we've had to like reschedule whole episodes based on, you know, weather in, in New York and shooting outside and you're shooting a spring scene in February and you're, um, you know, melting snow off the sidewalks. Uh, but uh, I think the crews are great on both coasts. I think uh, the talent is great on both coasts. Um, 
I find in New York when you're doing um, auditions because there's so many like Broadway actors and really unbelievably trained actors that, you know, you're doing an audition for three lines on a show and, you know, 18 of the 20 people that you see, you would hire in a heartbeat. You know what I mean? I think that's like the biggest difference. Yeah. Um, before I get to my next question, when you were talking about making the tran the transition, what was your ramp up for learning new technology? Did you have to learn new technology? Did you shadow other directors before you, you know, you were offered your first job? How did, how did that work? Yeah, I think, you know, multicam and single cam, there's a, a lot of different, uh, there's a lot of tech, different technique. There's a lot of different, um, equipment you need to talk lenses with a director in single camera and you know I did a lot of homework and I did shadow people um and uh you know I just try to learn I asked a lot of questions especially the first few years I was on single camera sets I'd walk up to the DP and ask a lot of questions I'd ask the camera people questions I'd ask I did just ask a lot of questions mm -hmm. and you know you learn quick and and it's and it's dialogue and banter that, you know, you can weave in and out. And um, it is funny because you go to do a multicam, you know, I, I do still do like live directing, I'll do other stuff. And, uh, um, and you know, you cue people when you're doing a live thing. And when uh, you're talking to actors, you go action and, you know, there'll be times I'd be on the set of Lips in the Battle and I'd be like, and action, I mean, and cue the, you know, <laughs> you just <laughs> get a little get a little confused sometimes do you have a preference between the two no and i honestly don't i love them all i love them both i love uh the high you get from live directing um i love having to think on my feet like that i um i love sitting with an act with some actors and working out a scene and making it better um, I love the time you have with single cam, um, you know, s setting your shots and doing your takes. I love the time you have in multicam where you're running through the episode and you can see it from start to finish because you're doing run throughs at the end of your rehearsal days and you can see the whole episode, um, in front of you. So, um, I think every single genre has huge positives and uh i i love doing all of it honestly it's super fun each one of them and when they all meld together like when i did the live sound of music that was like so it was everything you know you had the high of the live but it was all narrative and it was yeah wow so the project that you're working on right now bob hart's abishola um you're shooting during a pandemic and i know that a lot of people are now fortunately able to go back to work but there's a lot of new protocols in place how has production changed in this in this time period it's been interesting and i don't know how many people on the uh webinar have been to set but um there's a lot of protocols in place and you know the the edict from our show and the state you know we're shooting at warner brothers is safety is first and safety is first always on a set but the amount of safety that we are in the midst of is 
is exponential. It's, you know, um, not fun being in a mask all day, guys. It is not fun, but it is safe. And it's not fun being in a mask and a shield most of the day, which I am because I'm in the zone, like there's a red zone. If you're going to be near the actors, you have even more protocol and more testing. And, you know, it's not fun having Q-tips stuck up your nose several times a week, but it's, you know, it's the world we're living in right now. And we're absolutely blessed that we're even going back to work because there's so many people that aren't working. Um, so it's really about, uh, safety and making the actors feel comfortable. And we have uh, shot two episodes and it's gone very, very well. Uh, we had one positive test and it was in a zone like the green zone, which was people that a little pot of people that are never on the set when we're on the set and that kind of thing. And we think it was false positive because the uh, person went and got another test on their own immediately after and it was negative and they have had no symptoms they've been unsymptomatic but they have quarantined um and our set i feel i feel personally very safe and i feel very responsible to make sure all of our actors feel very safe and our whole staff feels safe so we on a daily basis you know make announcements like if there's anything you're not comfortable with you know, you can anonymously anonymously talk to somebody. You can come up to me. You can come up to anybody. We have COVID officers there. We have, you know, our testings right outside our stage. Um, you know, we have all the PPE uh, given to us. Everyone is on iPads and not. Um, there's a few people that uh, you know are printing out their own scripts, but they're the only ones that touch them. Uh, it's you know, it's definitely a new world, and everything takes a little bit longer. Um, but it's okay yeah. because we're keeping everybody safe. Are you doing table reads like this? Is this how you we are doing? Things? We were doing a zoom table read and we tried to do, um, cause it's a Chuck Lorre show and Chuck has 25 other shows. <laughs> and one of the shows we're doing a socially distanced in person table read, kind of like the SNL one was, mm -hmm. um, but there are only six cast members on that show and it was easy to see everybody. So we tried it with people coming in and out because we have like 13 regular cast and we always have guest cast. But some shows are, you know, if it's a smaller cast, they're socially distancing and doing like a V formation and keeping everyone six feet apart. But I, I I think the Zoom, the webinars, because you can talk on top of each other, and we kept all the writers' mics open. I did another table read for another show, and everybody's mics were off except for me doing the stage directions and the cast, and that was a little strange for comedy because you're waiting to hear laughs. You're not getting so, any feedback. So we kept all the writers' mics on, and it and you know, it's not is it optimum? No, but it's safe and it and you get the gist and you're hearing the words and the writers feel like they can do the rewrites based on them so so it's working yeah shante um, i have a random question for you yeah. um so many directors would have loved to direct 30 rock and modern family i'm curious to know what shows past or present um do you wish you had the opportunity to direct oh my god there's so many uh, I would start with the Mary Tyler Moore show, which is one of my favorites ever. 
I mean, who wouldn't want to direct an episode of The Golden Girls? Um, who wouldn't want to direct any of those Susan B. Harris shows like Soap and all those shows were amazing. Any of the Norman Lear shows I would have loved to direct an episode of. Um, I, I literally fell so in love with Schitt's Creek that I called my agents and I'm like, have they gotten all their directors for the final season? I'll just come up. They don't even have to pay me. <laughs> But they had already they had already finished the last season. Um, and then as far as, you know, I I don't do dramas. I do dramedies. But if I, um, you know, I'm a huge lover of dramas and there are certain ones that, you know, if I ever got direct an episode of, I would have done. I mean, Mad Men, The Sopranos, uh, you know, any of those shows. Uh, um, Leslie Linkagladder, I got to know from uh, an Emmy thing that we did. And um, I love her and I love her work. And I mean, the stuff she's done on Homeland is just amazing. Um, my new favorite drama is Succession, who uh, my friend Adam McKay directed the pilot and directs a bunch of them. And, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, anytime I see a great show on television, I wish I directed it. And you have time to watch. Sometimes, you know what? I take time off in the summer because my husband's a school teacher and my son's out of school. So in the summer, I watch TV. <laughs> and sometimes at night when I can't sleep. Sarah, should we open it up to questions from the audience or do you have any more questions? Well, are there any? I, yeah, I think I have one more or maybe two. Are there, are there any directors that you have looked up to as, you, as you've come up? A million of them. Okay. Or anyone um, that outside of, you know, when you were coming up at MTV, anyone that mentored you along the way? Um, oh, I guess. Yeah, I mean, so the two directors I talked about that I directed for is a guy named Scott Fishman, who does not direct anymore. And he is like an EIC and he's salt of the earth and such a great guy. And Milton Lage, who is also a director still. Um, and they were the ones that really kind of um, championed me when I was younger. Uh, I get to not meet many directors because you're usually you're the lone wolf on the set, but, you know, I get to meet directors that are prepping while I'm shooting and that kind of stuff. And, um, I have become friends of directors that I was huge fans of, like the Gail Mancusos of the world and the Pam Freimans of the world. They're just awesome. And, um, one year, uh, me and Pam and Gail got nominated for Emmys in the direct in you know for directing, and I emailed them and I was like, I think this is the first time that three of the five nominees are ladies, and we're not going to win, so let's go out to dinner. So <laughs> three of us went out to dinner and had a really fun night. And the following year, I think like I think Leslie was nominated in the drama department and so was i think oh i think lena dunham was nominated and so i think like six of the of the like eight or nine directors in the two categories were all women and they made a big story about it and um they asked me and i said well last year <laughs> we did this thing because three of us were nominated so lena wrote an email to all of us and she's like what night's dinner so a bunch of us went out to dinner before the Emmys again, and that's where I met Leslie. And um, and all that's really fun because, you know, you share experiences. And 
um, you know, the director's the lone wolf on the set quite a bit. And it's really nice to have those people to bounce things off of and to talk to and to go, yeah, that happens to me on set too. And, you know, um, it makes you feel a lot less lonely because I will say I was such a staff person before I started doing uh, narrative uh, directing. And I started, you know, the first season, I was just going from show to show and just being like, mm, I don't know any of these people. And I guess I'll eat lunch by myself in the office that they provided for me. <laughs> um, but I ended up loving it because I got to meet so many people and uh, meet so many different showrunners and work with so many different staffs that were, you know, the the good news is that and it's good news for the DGA, I will say, that almost every single staff that I have walked into, uh, the DJ staff is top-notch, so good at their jobs, and it's been such a treat for me to meet so many different people um, within the Guild, uh, you know, over these past 10 whatever years that I've been doing, uh, narrative 10, 12 years, um, and just learn from people. So those two years, did a woman win either of those years? Do you recall? I think so. But then Gail won, like, I think Gail won the next year. She won for Modern Family. Yeah, I think she's won twice. And I think Leslie's won. Yeah. But you were right that first year when you said, let's just go to dinner. Yeah. Yeah. I was right. But we had so much fun. It was more fun than going to the Emmys, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> um, have have there been like a, a career defining moment where you were like, if that didn't happen, this wouldn't have happened or anything that you can link? So, know? so many of them. And honestly, uh, I feel very blessed and very lucky for a lot of things that happened in my career. And from working at MTV and having two directors that championed me to uh, a vice president get, got hired in production and she walked into my office and said, oh, we have this show MTV Unplugged. Would you like to direct the pilot? You know, um, to uh, the head of development going, uh, I'd like you to meet with this comedian, John Stewart. We're going to do a late night talk show with him. We'd like you to do the pilot. Um, you know, John really shaped how I think about comedy so much and the whole staff. I mean, the writers I'm working now on Bob Hart's Abishola with Al Higgins, who was one of the original writers on the MTV version of the Jon Stewart show, who is just an absolute love. And we, we realize we've known each other way too many years than we care to admit. And, you know, his brother, Steve, I left Jon Stewart with him and we were at Saturday Night Live together and there were, um, and then, if you look at the writers that I worked with on Saturday Night Live, it's just nuts. I've worked with a ton of them. Mike Schur, who did Parks and Recreation, does The Good Place, and I get to work with him. And Tina, who has championed me, uh, you know, that first year that I left Saturday Night Live, I made half my salary. I did uh -oh. not work very much. Mm -hmm. And I was a scaredy pants and thought, what did I do? And then Tina asked me to direct an episode of 30 Rock. And I directed this episode called The Rural Juror. Mm -hmm. And it just 
an article like a week after it aired came out and said that 30 Rock got its legs somewhere around the rural jury. And believe me, I got gifted an incredible script. <laughs> I am not taking credit for it at all. Um, but 30 Rock became the greatest calling card. And I did a lot of them. And I had a personal relationship with Tina and Robert, and I'm sure that helped them continue hiring me. Alec, I had worked, he had, I think he had hosted SNL eight of the 11 of my seasons, I think. So I had a relationship with Alec. I had a relationship with Tracy. Um, I had done stuff with Jack McBrayer, who had done UCB. So it was kind of family. Um, and I got to work with writers like Jack Burdett. And I mean, it's, it's just nuts. The amount of talent that I have been able to be like socially distanced from uh, <laughs> is insane. Mm -hmm. And if I didn't get better at what I do, then I shouldn't do it anymore because I have been given an incredible gift being around all these people. And then Lauren, I mean, Lauren Michaels is incredible. And I was so lucky to, that he chose me. I mean, mm -hmm. I was like a cable weasel and he chose me, you know, and, <laughs> and then later on in my life, I get a call and uh, they say, oh, we want you to meet on the show, The Kaminsky Method. And it's the first time I met Chuck Lorre. And I mean, I know Chuck Lorre, I know of him. I never yeah. met him before. And that was another incredible experience. So I have been, I mean, knock on something, the wood. I have been so lucky. It's nuts. Well, and it sounds like each moment has brought on the next moment. It has. It really has. Interconnected. And a lot of them have been happy accidents. Can I ask a question about MTV? I'm yeah. Close. I have to ask about Nirvana. Oh. Um, <laughs> so Rolling Stone said it was the greatest unplugged performance of all time. It is. Looking back to 1993, as you worked on the project, did you realize back then how impactful it was going to be on society almost 30 years later? Uh, when I, first of all, they, you know, at that time, Kurt was, you know, Kurt Cobain and nobody talked to him and, you know, you couldn't get within you six feet of him. And so they sent us to Hoboken where the band was rehearsing and it was just me and my AD and we walked in the room and they were rehearsing and they all just stopped <laughs> and then they went back to rehearsing and then finally, Dave Grohl was like, uh, can we help you guys? I'm like, oh, we were sent here. I'm the director. Sorry, we're just making notes. It's okay. And then, and it was fine. And then uh, when we did the first rehearsal on stage, you know, it was Kurt's idea to put all the flowers in there and the candles and um, which looked beautiful, but also definitely depicted something that was a little foreshadowing, but um, we did our rehearsal and uh, one of the executives came up to me and said, um, you know, they're not really doing too many hits. Uh, could you go talk to them about maybe doing Smells Like Teen Spirit? And I was like, you could go talk to him about yeah. that. <laughs> I think that is one of the most amazing sets of music I've ever seen, but have at it if you'd like to do that. <laughs> they didn't ask, mm -mm. which was, thank God they didn't. Um, and yes, when you were shooting it, you definitely had the feeling that it was something pretty special. 
you miss shooting um, musical performances? Did yes, that- like crazy. I miss it. I love it. It's one of my favorite things to do. And I had a friend that did a show called Lip Sync Battle, and she asked me um, to work on it with her, and we would shoot it on the weekend. So I was, I would like direct the sitcom all week, and then direct lip sync battles all weekend just because they were fun. Can you take us through um, preparing for Super Super Bowl halftime performances and the infamous um, Janet? Uh (laughs) (laughs) Well, the cool thing about halftime shows is that, um, well, it's kind of nuts. So you can bring in a few of your own cameras but you also need to utilize the game cameras. So you have camera one and you have camera 55 mm-hmm. and you have camera four and you have camera 72. So it's very hard to get used to. And you know you kind of have to figure out what game cameras you're gonna use, what cameras you wanna bring in to supplement and then the whole week of the Super Bowl, the most powerful person is the guy who's in charge of the field. He decides who gets on the field, when they get on the field, how long they get on the field, and that is what you get. So when we would do it, the game would be on Sunday. We would get the field from six o'clock at night to midnight on a Thursday night. So all of your other, that's the only time you see the halftime show on camera in the stadium for six hours. And in that time, you have like two or 3,000 volunteers that once the halftime whistle blows, start running on the field and putting together the stage. And the first time MTV did it, that's why they would just do lip syncs and, uh, you know, no live instruments and stuff like that. And the arrogant MTVers, us, were like, why aren't we have live mics? Why don't we have live instruments? This is ridiculous. And then we realized, oh, there's a reason why you don't do that. But um, anyway, they decided they wanted, uh, the first time I think it was Aerosmith, Britney, NSYNC, Mary J. Blige, I wanna say, maybe Nelly. And we're like, we're doing all live mics. And uh, Joe Perry wants a live guitar. And so we did all that, but it was nuts. And it was like fingers crossed the whole time. So you, on Thursday night, you have to rehearse like your first hour, at least of rehearsal is just the volunteers running the stage on, making sure everything fits and plugs in. And then you take it apart and then you try to do it again, just, you know, in your rehearsal and getting talent on stage and making sure all the mics work and all that kind of stuff. So. Um, you really get to see it maybe two or three times on camera and then everything else you're in a space with the stage taped out and you're just watching it and making notes and hoping you don't screw up. It's real fun. (laughs) But, um, and it's a thrill and it's super exciting, but, um, it's a little, it's, it's a little daunting. And then, uh, the first time we did it, there was a switch. So the the camera guys um, that are listening to the director who's directing the, the Super Bowl, there was a switch that they were going to switch at halftime and then they could hear me. Well, somebody didn't flip the switch and I hear 
the camera guys talking to each other going, can you hear her? No, I can't hear her. Okay, well, I guess we'll just do what we did in rehearsal. And I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> and I, I run, to, I turn around and our tech manager is standing in the truck and I just, his name was George. And I was just like, George! And he just ran out of the truck. And probably about a minute before we went on live, the camera guys could hear me. So that was a little nutty. And then, of course, there was the infamous one, which I we knew nothing about. She was, um, they were going to have a skirt that was going to tear away. And um, when we rehearsed on stage Thursday night, the Velcro that the skirt had, I think while she was doing the choreography for Rhythm Nation was coming loose. So on Friday, when we were rehearsing in the other space, uh, Janet had come up to me and said, you know, we might not do that skirt thing. And uh, I said, that's okay. Let me know. I'm on a head to toe shot. So we see the skirt. If you're not going to do it, let me know. I can go into some tighter shots. So we didn't hear anything. And then when it happened, remember, it was the very end of the song. I was cutting around and then I had a cut to a wide shot in cue pyro. So I had cut to that shot and I was looking at the next thing and I just heard this gasp behind me and I thought I did something wrong. And I'm like, Cupara, what? What did I do? What did I do? So I never even really saw it, saw it. In the moment. Um, uh, you know, we got to post about, I mean, it was, it changed television. It was nuts. But I told them, I would have been on a tighter shot had I known about it. So, so it would have still changed television. I know, and it's I, it made me sad because I think it really changed her persona forever. Mm -hmm. um, and I know you're shocked, but I haven't been asked to do a halftime show since. <laughs> That's interesting. But I'm thrilled <laughs> and honored that I got two opportunities to do them. Yeah. Shantae, do you want to ask our first question from our audience? Um, this is a, um, a message or a question from Chuck. He, he asks, Beth, please share your most devastating moment and most spectacular moment sitting in the chair on a live show. And what did you learn from both? Ooh, there's been a lot of devastating moments, I'm sad to say. <laughs> I have directed Saturday Night Live doing a musical performance where not one of the, of the five, but two of the five cameras go down. Um, I was doing, uh, I was shooting Janet Jackson, New Year's Eve. I was at Madison Square Garden. We were doing some performances of Janet Jackson at Madison Square Garden. We had, it was MTV and our offices were right in 30, uh, right in uh, Times Square, 30. And uh, we had talent in Times Square. I think it was like Kennedy and Ed Lover or something. Uh, and we were going to things with them. And so I was in Madison Square Garden in a control room. I was talking to camera people at Madison Square Garden, camera people and producers in Times Square and the talent IFBs in Times Square. And somebody at MSG turned off the McCurdy system and everything, I had no communication with anybody and we were going live. So we, ran walkie talkies to the camera guys at Madison Square Garden. I called a producer that was 
and our the MTV studios in Times Square that could talk to the camera operator you from the telephone. Times Square studio. And then the only thing that worked was the IFB. So I had a walkie-talkie, a phone, and an IFB, and I had to direct the first half hour like that. Half hour? And, yes. And then they found out what happened and turned it back on. And at the end of the show, the MSG employee <laughs> brought the guy that turned off the McCurdy by accident to me. And he just had his head down. He's like, I'm really, really sorry. <laughs> what are you going to do? Like, I can't really talk about it right now. <laughs> it was <laughs> the worst. Um, yeah, there's a lot of things like that. I went to do, I almost did a, uh, I, almost, I was doing a James Taylor live from the Beacon Theater for PBS. And we had a generator for the audio truck, but we were on house power for the truck truck the video truck and an hour before the show con ed lost power on the whole block at the beacon theater like on 72nd everything went down so then we had to unplug everything from the generator and then plug the truck and the audio truck back into the generator and just hope that everything came back and about seven minutes before the show, everything came back and we went alive in the air. Those are all those moments that, you know, you're probably not gonna live as long as you should. There are so many times in Saturday Night Live where we're counting down five, four, a couch is getting into position, the cast is jumping on it while one, and then I'm coming up on the camera shot. Like that stuff happens a lot there, <laughs> but it's exciting, it's just, a little nerve-wracking. What about a spectacular moment? Um, God, there's so many of those too. I think, you know, the first time I saw um, an episode of television that I was really proud I directed, that I knew there were things that I did that made the episode a little bit better and I watched it on TV, it kind of made me super excited. I think, um, when I watched back the live sound of music, I really felt like that was um, an accomplishment. And we were kind of the first one out of the gate in this new modern thing. And I think we uh, tried a lot of things and, uh, you know, obviously, you know, my crew and everybody else that kicked butt to make that thing so great in the cast and Carrie Underwood, who's an absolute charm and delight to be around. Um, that felt like a real accomplishment. I think the first time I did Saturday Night Live was crazy and nerve wracking. And uh, also the first time I directed Saturday Night Live, they did a monologue where it was Marielle Hemingway was the host and she walked around the studio and introduced everybody. And the joke was that um, she didn't care because she uh, was famous. She did that uh, movie, Personal Best, and she was the woman that Roseanne kissed on Roseanne for mm -hmm for all the youngins on the webinar that don't know who she is or what she did. Um, so they wrote a monologue where she's introducing it. I came in with a whole new cast and she was introducing the new cast and she was kind of blown off the guys and being really interested in the girls. And by the time she comes in the control room and introduces me, she kisses me on the mouth. So oh. it was the first time I was directing Saturday Night Live. I had to be on camera, which I, hate more than life itself. And then 
I had to be kissed on the mouth by Marilyn Hemingway. A good kisser, guys. But it was very nerve wracking. That's a spectacular moment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, our next question is from the audience. Do you prep your projects differently, such as SNL versus Modern Family? Uh, they are, they're different beasts. I mean, Saturday Night Live, that, that's kind of like a whirlwind tour. You are, you know, you do a table read on Wednesday. The show gets picked on Wednesday night. I have different things I have to do. The first thing I have to do on Wednesday night once the show gets picked is make sure I can fit it in the studio. So the SNL stage, if anyone hasn't been there, is actually very small. And you have to you have to decide what sets are going to be living sets that are going to stay there. And then ones you're going to build and collapse. And there's, you know, Ken Among, who's the supervising producer there, was the man that held my hand through all of that. He's incredible and such a wonderful, wonderful friend to me. Um, uh, but, you know, you sit with the art department and you figure out what sets we're going to build in a commercial break, what sets, you know, live, what sets. And and they it all it all works out in the wash, but you have to kind of figure all that out. And then, um, you know, you have to talk to the writer because uh, the writers kind of serve as the producers of their pieces. And then you have to talk about what what the sets are going to, because everything is like a train that just goes into motion and you can't stop it. And you have to talk about costumes on Wednesday night. You have to talk about all that. And then Thursday and Friday, you rehearse the show. And as I rehearse the show, I'm picking every camera shot. I'm making notes. And then I, I would get a script on Friday night. We would after rehearsal was over, sit in Lauren's office, pick the the order for uh, dress rehearsal, and then I would go to a hotel room and literally write every camera shot in, every cue, every note, and then they would they would uh, copy my script and everybody worked off of that. So that that's just a different kind of prep. Yeah. You know, Modern Family, I'm not writing uh, camera shots down. I mean, some shows, they a single camera shows, they want you to do shot sheets. Um, you know, I don't do those a lot because sometimes, you know, the blocking does change when you get get on the floor. I have ideas of things, and especially if there's specialty shots I want to do, you know, you you go on your prep week and kind of talk to the DP ahead of time. But you know, for a show like Modern Family, you're you're location scouting, you're doing um, you know auditions for smaller roles. You're you know you have meetings with like costumes and uh, hair and makeup and uh, set design and uh, props and all that kind of stuff. And and from show to show, it's very different. I mean, a show like Thirty Rock, the props were sometimes very very specific and they were jokes. So that process was so much more intricate than picking the spoon you're going to use on another show you know what i mean so it really kind of depends from show to show and um you know your ad staff because you're a guest on the show you're your first ad you really kind of lean on to to know what what's important to that machine you know what's the most important information to give that machine when you need to give it to them you know um the next question is do you have any advice for transitioning from one hour drama to comedy? Oof. I don't know because I haven't done it, but I will say I'm sure there like I don't I don't think that I can walk onto a drama set and, you know, kill it the first time. <laughs> um, 
you know, comedy is comedy and drama are very, very different. There are obviously things that are very, very similar. Um, but I think it's about your sensibilities. And for me, uh, I know that I can create a comedic moment. I would probably feel more insecure about being able to create a dramatic moment or making something, uh, you know, adding to a drama as much that I can add to a comedy. But I, I would say, you know, observing people and being on sets and being around that process is always very helpful. I've done some dramedies and you definitely have a different headspace. And um, sometimes when uh, I'm on a dramedy, they specifically want me there because they want to make sure the comedy in the drama comes out. So I don't have to worry as much about the drama because the showrunner's done it in the script and the actors have done it and they're acting in their characters because they know their characters. So part of my job for being there is to try to make sure that the comedy does play. Um, no one's asked me to come and make a drama more dramatic. So <laughs> there's still time. Uh, exactly. <laughs> but I did try to soak up you know, how those moments, the dramatic moments, how they play and, and, and the techniques that the actor used and the words that the, that the showrunner or the writer used to make those dramatic moments really play. And, and lucky for me that I wasn't on a couple of those shows because I was around it a little bit. So I understand it a little better now. Um, someone else writes in, what are skills needed to transition from multi-cam to single cam directing? Hmm. Well, single camera directing, uh, the preparation is very different, I will say. And, you know, you have to learn what that prep is and what that process is. And you also have to learn to know what to ask for. And you're placing cameras a little differently than you do with multi-cam. Um, you block a little different. I mean, the, the, the lucky thing for the show that I'm on now, Bob Hartz is it's very, um, hybridy and we bring in fourth walls and we get different angles. So I don't have to worry as much about that proscenium, uh, blocking to make sure everything plays to the lenses in the, uh, traditional four camera multi-camera setup. Mm -hmm. So I go, I bring cameras into the set and I bring in a, a corner wall and I get those other angles so I can, you know, uh, uh, do that. But there's a very big difference in blocking with single cam and multi-cam. And I think, you know, the process for multi-cam directors in going to single cam, they have to remember that, like they got the whole room now. And they have to figure out, although you have the whole room, you know, you kind of have to figure out because your schedule is not, you know, optimum. You're not shooting a movie where you can get every single shot you want. So you have to, even though you're blocking for a whole room, you have to block it efficiently to know like, oh, when that person walks here, they'll be in this person's coverage who just left. So we don't have to do another setup for that and blah, blah, blah. And uh, people are going from single cam to multicam have to go, oh, the cameras can only go here. So I have to make sure I get two eyes on this person here and that, and then make sure this all works in this setting. Are you blocking backwards when you're doing single cam? Like, are you, if you're thinking about what's next, do you have to kind of think of it backwards? Uh, I know. I think you just have to think of it as a whole. And, okay. you know, there are some scenes that you're just going to have to do like two or three lighting setups, 
but um and and in in single cam comedy and i'm not saying in movie directing mm -hmm. but in single cam comedy uh, a, a lot of dps have gotten very um very savvy and very genius on being able to cross shoot because the big thing about comedy is you know there's moments that are magic that you want to capture so when you're getting somebody's side and then you turn around and you get the other person's side and they do an ad lib and there's a react that you never got when you were on that other side. Mm -hmm. It's such a bummer. So whenever you can cross shoot in comedy, I always try to. Um, and a lot of the DPs have been unbelievably um, gracious and figured out a way to um, shoot stuff single cam, but be able to get both sides of coverage, especially like on your close-ups. Mm -hmm. um, you know, or your me your medium shots, so that you can get performance from both sides. So you do catch there's that like on a show like Thirty Rock, you had a ton of people who are incredible improvisers, and it mm -hmm. and they were just little moments. It was a very scripted series, but there were little moments sometimes that you know somebody said something a different way, and the reaction was different, and it made it so much funnier. Have you ever directed a feature film? If not, would you want to? I have never directed a feature film. I have prepped two feature films that have not. One got made somewhere else and another one didn't get made. They pulled the plug in it like right when we were going to the production offices. Um, I would love to direct a feature. Right now in my life, the way the world of feature uh, films working, I have a 15 year old son who's only going to be, you know, I hate to say it in my house for three more years, um, full time. And uh, it doesn't make sense for me to go on location for four months and be away from my family. Um, you know, I, uh, I, of course, would love to do a feature. Um, I would love to do a feature if it makes sense. I, I'm at a point where I had, I've waited this long, I'm not going to do um, Beethoven 12 because it's a movie. I'm going to do a movie because it's something that I'm passionate about and I I think I can add something to and feel like it's, you know, be something good for me. But um, I, I mean, come on, I would love to do it. Um, who hasn't sat in a movie theater and just been like, I wish I directed that? <laughs> Very true. Um, Question you kind of answered earlier, but another aspect to it was, how did you get the directing gig at SNL and why was there an opening? Oh, okay. No, I didn't really answer that. Yeah. So um, I had left MTV for the Jon Stewart show, which got picked up in syndication to replace the Arsenio Hall show because, I mean, who wouldn't want to watch who's Arsenio fan watch Jon Stewart? But anyway... <laughs> um, that didn't work out so well. So after nine months, the show was getting canceled. And I was freaking out a little bit because I was in New York. It was my first um, job in the union. So I had no contacts, DGA contacts. I was, was you know, what am I going to do? And the week that the show got canceled, and by the way, they canceled us we were on hiatus and we had to go back and do two weeks of shows. So it was like countdown to cancellation. Yeah, it was, it was, it was fun, super mm -hmm. fun. Um, but uh, the week that the show got canceled, I miraculously got calls from Letterman and Saturday Night Live and Hal Gurney, who was the director of uh, David Letterman for a million years, 
had just left and the fabulous Jerry Foley, I think had been the technical director and he was, you know, immediately filling in as the director. They hadn't a hundred percent said he, he was doing it. And then um, Davey Wilson, who directed 18 of the 20 seasons of SNL. So he directed the first 10 years and left for two years and then came back and had directed eight more years. He was just done and retiring. I think part of it had to do with, you know, that was the world where everything was turning into no smoking and, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. Buildings were smoke free. I think he was a smoker. Um, I think he was done. I, I can't imagine doing that show for 18 years. That's just an incredible accomplishment. And he did it during some pretty crazy times. Um, so he was leaving and uh, I met with Robert Morton, who was David Letterman's executive at the time. And I met with Lorne and um, the more I was meeting with them, I, uh, I thought that Saturday Night Live was the next step for me. I would have directed John's talk show till I was 80 if, um, if that was the case. Um, I was a huge be believer in him and still think he's one of the most brilliant comic minds of our time. But um, I wasn't gonna go do another talk show. I thought Saturday Night Live was the next step for me. And crazy enough, I got chosen, which I couldn't believe I did. And, um, and just thought that that was the next place for me to go. But it is a sign that directors do leave amazing shows because that's what opened up to to openings. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it, it really. And when I say happy accidents, I mean yeah. I was in New York, never been in the Guild before. There was nothing going on in New York. I think there was like Spin City. Mm -hmm. so it was really. I would have had to like leave the Guild and go back to MC. I had I had no prospects, <laughs> or I would have had to move to LA, and I was petrified. I was like I didn't know what I was going to do. And ridiculously enough, and, and the fact that Steve Higgins, who I'd been working with for a year, was going to Saturday Night Live as the head writer made the transition so much better for me. And a couple of the other writers from Jon Stewart also got on Saturday Night Live. So I had, you know, at least a little bit of camaraderie there, which was great. Speaking of SML, who was the most surprising host and why? Oh, there's so many of them. God, there's so many good hosts and people that I was very surprised by. Um, I was surprised at what a good actor and what a funny bone Garth Brooks had. Um, I was, uh, you know, there's some people that come to the show and you expect them to be hilarious and they're kind of serious and you're surprised. And then, um, and then, you know, you have so many different actors and actresses that come through there uh, and when you have a serious actor that just because they're such a good actor, they make the scene so much better. I'll never forget Joan Allen was the host who's such an amazing actress. And she was doing an impression of Madonna. And it was when Madonna had kind of that weird fake um, English accent. And she just mm -hmm. did an impression of Madonna that was so spot on that it just, I, I mean, I was blown away and she, she wasn't like haha ha, funny bone you know she's a serious actress but she was amazing julianne moore has a great funny bone she's so darn funny and um and she is such a serious actress in her real 
world. So, you know, to be able to work with her at Saturday Night Live, and then she uh, played a recurring role on 30 Rock, and she is just like an absolute, I mean, just sitting watching her do a scene is insane. I shot scenes with her and Alec. Uh, it was like the first episode she was on. It was pretending it was Christmas in Rockefeller Center. And I'm watching scenes with the two of them at the at village in the little video tap. And I would like forget to yell cut because it was just- We're so engrossed. Oh my God. I mean, such great actors. Uh, well, speaking of comedy, do you approach sketch comedy differently than multi-single? I think all of them are different. I yeah. think, you know, there are things you can get away with in sketch that you could never do in a comedy. Um, I think you approach comedy show by show, honestly. I mean, um, you know, multicam tends to be you can get away with some broader things. Um, single cam, you play a lot more subtleties. But, you know, 30 Rock, there were some things that we played that were super big and broad. Not often, but, you know, um, that was more just a relentless joke machine. Um, but, you know, Modern Family, you know, that show has a ton of heart. And there's these moments that you play that are sweet and funny, um, where another show doesn't have that as much, you know. Um, also, it depends upon the style of you know a traditional single cam as opposed to like modern family which is that documentary style and you have to think very differently about how you are blocking a show like parks and rec or modern family because you're not doing traditional camera coverage you know you're going to get a joke when you swing a camera and land on something mm -hmm. so you have to think about the way you're blocking a scene like oh, I can put them here because it would be a great reveal to swing the camera, or it might be a great reveal that somebody just comes in the background and you rack and push. Um, whereas in a traditional single cam setup, you want things to either happen in the frame or you want to do a fluid move to something to reveal. And so it, I, I think it's not just sketch, multi, single. I think it's case by case. I mean, shows are really different these days. And are you just going with your instinct at this point since you've been doing it for so long? Yes, but when I do a new show, the first thing I do is I ask the showrunner before I'm going there to send me at least three of their favorite episodes. Because when I watch those episodes, mm -hmm. I can kind of tell the acting that they like because it's their the writing that they like, the timing that they like, the camera shots that they like, and that kind of helps me kind of form what I should be doing when I'm there. And then if I add my own stuff to it, usually when I do a show the first time, I don't kind of attack my way of how I see things. I try to make it look as much like the show um, as I can, but I will ask some questions like, oh, I had an idea to do this. Is that kind of not your show or would you be into it? Or, you know, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I try to be, um, I try to be schooled before I go there. I try to watch as many episodes of whatever show that I'm doing when I'm doing it for the first time. Obviously, like a show like Modern Family or 30 Rock where I've done 20 whatever many episodes, um, I kind of know it. And and shows that I'm a fan of, like, you know, I watched every episode of Veep, so it wasn't hard for me to walk in and do the show. <laughs> you know, and I knew Julia. Um, I had worked with her several times. She had hosted SNL, and she was in the live 30 Rock. and um, so uh, 
you know, it's fun when I get to do a show that I'm a huge fan of because I'm like, oh, I got this. I know exactly what this is. You know? Do you have a favorite Modern Family episode that you directed? God, there's so many of them that I loved. Um, uh, there's so many of them. I loved Phil's Sexy Sexy House. I loved uh, the... Um, there was one that was like a French farce. It was like three turkeys. It was a Thanksgiving episode. There was a really sweet episode where um, Jay's trying to go out to dinner with the family at this new restaurant that they love and they end up at a taco stand at the end. That's really sweet. Um, there's one called Mystery Date that Matthew Broderick was uh, a guest star on where Phil totally mis, mis uh, understands uh, Matthew Broderick thinks that Phil's hitting on him and asking, you know, trying to trying to date him, and Phil just thinks he's like a buddy from the gym. It's super funny. Um, there's so oh, I did the one last season where um, their mom died. That was a great episode. I, I I I honestly have gotten so many great episodes of that show. I you know the writers on there are fantastic. Um, I don't think I could really pick one, and that cast is. The writing's amazing, but that cast, I mean, the things that they found uh, to make those moments, I mean, just tie a look to the lens that he'll do at the end of a scene that just makes it so much better. All of them, they're all great. Um, and, and all clearly knew their characters very well. The kids, I mean, Sarah and uh, Ariel are incredible actresses and super funny. Quite the cast and show. Um, all right, this is gonna take us back a little bit. How did you learn to AD? So we've talked about skills of directing. Did Watch, you AD? Yeah, you. Um, I was at MTV and I was the um, line producer's assistant. And then the line producer six months later um, had to go on this shoot where uh, they called it a muck in America and he was out for like six months and I started sitting in the control room and I was like literally the assistant and getting calls from the vice president when stuff wasn't getting on the air that was wrong and I'm like I think this is about my pay grade but okay so I, <laughs> so I was in the control room and then if somebody called out sick I started being the studio PA but I was around all the time and watching and then I, you get trained I got trained to be the associate director and the associate director in the studio you know you had to stack graphics because we did news at the end of every day you had to make sure that all your graphics for all your BJ wraparounds were there so you learned all the technical aspects of ADing and then um uh one of the directors Scott Fishman asked me to come be an AD on this we did a premiere party for the movie La Bamba. I am, I am aging myself so badly with all this. Um, but uh, I had to figure out how to direct, how to AD music. And he's like, well, just put a clock on it and, and count me to the, and I'm thinking, well, Marshall Crenshaw is never gonna play this exactly the same way every time. So I just started counting bars. And he's like, oh yeah, that's better. Um, and it was, it was, it was a Mickey Rooney, Judy Garland movie. It was like, my mom has some costumes, my dad has a bar and let's put on a show. It was, uh, they were doing remote control and one of the producers came up to me and he's like, do you know how to direct, uh, do you know how to AD a game show? I'm like, nope, he's like, figure it out. And that's what it was 
Um, so it was, there was a lot of that there then. Which was a great training ground. Yeah, it really was. It was like going to graduate school and getting paid a tiny bit of money. <laughs> so I have to ask you, Beth, you've shown me over the past hour and a half what, how great your memory is. How oh, do you it's remember ridiculous. all of these moments and people's names? Because I find I'm visual, so I remember a person's face without, but I, you know, you take me no, from... I have, I have that problem. Okay. I have a ridiculous memory which I know is not going to always be with me and I am I am in trouble because I do not write enough stuff down but I mean we would be in meetings at Saturday Night Live and they would want to pull a sketch that we had done in dress like the season before and I would remember the host I remember like oh no we cut it after it was nuts my, I don't remember those now. I've pushed those out of my memory bank. Um, but I do have that problem with faces and names because I would work, do all these freelance jobs in New York and LA. And, you know, you work with different crews and I would be walking down um, broad, like Broadway going to 30 Rock and some of these guys that either worked at MTV or worked on one of the, you know, one of the freelance shows I did or from Saturday Night Live and they would be working crew at like a Broadway show and they'd be like, Beth, and in my head, I'd be like, how do I know I'm John Stewart, MTV, Saturday? and I'd be like, oh my God, it's so good to see you. Mm -hmm. You know, and I'd be begging, I'd be like praying that my husband would like introduce himself so the, the person would say their name. <laughs> but yeah, I, I definitely have a hard time with names. Like in the beginning of seasons, I'll be like to my first AD, I need Chi-Chi. And it is hard when you're going from show to show. Um, you know, I'll have someone call me about, you know, a pilot and they'll say, oh, we were going to hire blah, blah, blah. You've worked with them before. And I'm like, I have. And then as soon as I see their face, I'm like, oh, yeah, no, I know them. I worked on this show with them and they're great. And blah, blah. But when they say the name, I'm like, yeah, it's bad. Okay. So even for how great yeah. your memory is to remember shows and moments, it's still it's hard. hard to keep track of people. I mean, you see how many different shows I would do in a season, yeah. especially when I was doing half hours. Mm -hmm. Shantae, do we have anything else? We have one more question. Okay. What, what are things you were able to do within episodic parameters that make the episode better? Um, it all depends. There could be something subtle. Sometimes a line's not working and just massaging the line and changing it a little different makes it work. Sometimes the blocking makes it better, a reaction makes it better. There, you know, I did this episode of 30 Rock called Secret Santa, and everyone was like uh, running away from Kenneth because he wanted to do a Secret Santa. And I said, you guys would be really fun if we did when he's coming into the writer's room and make it like, um, like a Japanese horror movie. And they had, we, we hung like these little like decorations that were elves on planes, but like we did all these Dutch angles and did all these zooms of people freaking out because Kenneth was coming and I made him look like he was like a Godzilla monster. And that wasn't in the script and, you know, it worked, but you know, there's all different kinds of things that you can do. And, and I don't, I don't lots of times run in right away and do that, but you know, you, you get inspired when you're reading a script and you get inspired, you know, we'll be on the floor and doing blocking on Bob Hart. And, you know, one of the actors will do something. I'm like, Ooh, but what if you do that like this? 
and do it at the end and it makes the scene better. You know, it's just, it's all different kinds of stuff. That's great. Well, Beth, this has been uh, honestly an incredible conversation. Aw, thank you guys. It was yeah. really nice for you to invite me. Yeah, no, check something off my own personal bucket list, being able to talk to you about your career. So um, on behalf of Focus on Women and, and for us, just really thank you for taking the time to do this. Thank you for having me, guys. It was so nice to meet you both. Yes, and for those of you out there watching, thank you for, thank you for tuning in. That wraps up this exclusive discussion with Beth McCarthy Miller. If you'd like to hear more, check out episode 267, which features director Julie Dash discussing her filmography, or visit our YouTube page to find discussions with David O. Russell, Leslie Linka-Glatter, and Guillermo del Toro. The Director's Cut is available wherever you get your podcasts. Also, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.